Cassette Podcast Network. In episode two, Paul and Amy talk about how MI is deceptively simple and review the mighty global measures. For episode resources, contact us, and other info, please visit the Lions and Tigers and Bears MI website at nfartech.org forward slash MI podcast. That's N-F-A-R-T-E-C dot org forward slash MI podcast. Lions and Tigers and Bears, MI, an interactive podcast focused on the evidence-based practice of motivational interviewing, a method of communication that guides toward behavior change while honoring autonomy. I'm Amy Shanahan. And I'm Paul Warren. We've worked together over the past 10 years. We've been facilitating MI learning collaboratives and providing trainings and coaching sessions focused on the adoption and refinement of MI. We're also members of the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers. Join us in this adventure into the forest where we explore and get curious about what lies behind the curtain of MI. Amy, our topic today is uh, I am already doing MI, right? And right. I, I exactly. And I wanted to just take a moment to to talk about what that topic means to you and and kind of tease out for the people that we're having the opportunity to uh, share this with today, kind of why we wanted to focus on that topic. Well, I, I didn't think I was going to start with me, but I think I'll start with me and and go back in time to the earlier days in the 90s when I first started practicing motivational interviewing is that in, intuition that or it, it really uh, connected with me that these skills. So I, on one hand, thought I was already doing them. I'm listening. This totally fits me. I believe in this. This is, this is what I was looking for. It's my heart on pages. So I, I thought I was already doing it. And then when I started training it and continue to train it, people who come to the trainings have that same similar reaction. I'm already doing it. I know I'm already doing it. I, I ask open-ended questions. I know all about reflective listening. I learned that in college or I learned that in school, or it's something that I do naturally in a conversation. And then there's a, one other point that people say is I've gotten into this field to help people change. So that's the other aspect that they think, hey, I'm already doing it. So I wonder what you think about that as well. What Do you have anything to add to that? I share your experience of like, am I feel so right? Like it's the right, it just feels in line with sort of my beliefs and my desire to help other people and how I want to treat other people. And it, it, it really is, uh, I think, misleading that just because it, I feel an alignment with it, Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that I'm actually doing it. 
And, you know, we did talk about this a little bit in the first podcast when we talked about the things that MI is not. Um, and I feel that the reason we decided to come back to this particular topic is because of that feeling that I've had as a trainer. People are like, oh, yeah, I'm doing this. I want to help people. This is the right way to go. And I agree with them with all of that. And that still doesn't mean that they're effectively and specifically using motivational interviewing. And, you know, last time we talked, we talked a little bit about the idea of client-centered counseling and the stages of change model and how those two elements, which we absolutely know are not motivational interviewing Mm -hmm. in and of themselves, how they kind of cause people to think that they're actually practicing motivational interviewing. I get that too, that people come into the rooms talking about practicing motivational interviewing and they either expect the stages of change, talk about the stages of change as if it's part of and is a piece of MI. And it certainly is complementary in that it's a model of how people change. And we certainly know that the practice of motivational interviewing is having that conversation about change. And I like how you um, introduced this whole notion of having a collaborative partner and that you're invited by the person or you quoted somebody who said that. Hmm. And uh, it's about having that conversation about change is all about MI. And yeah. It's our, not, mm-hmm. our, our colleague, Kate Speck is the one who I'm quoting when she says, you know, I'm invited to be on, you know, somebody's change team to engage in that conversation about change. And that's not the same thing as client-centered counseling. It kind of goes back to that riddle we talked about last time. It's not really a riddle, but you can be practicing client-centered counseling and not be doing MI, and you can't be doing MI unless you're also interacting in a client-centered way. And I I like this story. I don't know why it resonated with me about Bill Miller and when he first started practicing and unpacking motivational interviewing, when people watched him do his work and he was was studying Carl Rogers or practicing client-centered care and also CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. And when the People were asking him, the practitioners were asking him, why did you ask that question? What made you reflect at that time? He then examined what he was doing and realized that he was doing a little bit different than client-centered and a little bit different than CBT, that there was some direction about a specific change and it wasn't specifically client-centered. And that really resonated with me, how he started to think that, hmm, I'm doing something a little different than these things. So it's not just client-centered where we're following someone. It has a direction, a focus, a goal that Mm -hmm. someone's ambivalent about. Mm -hmm. And it's guided by the worker. Right. Which which really prompts me to want to just restate, you know, MI, the ingredients that make up MI, the, the long list is a collaborative conversation between two partners who are collaborating, an identified behavioral change goal that the client feels ambivalent about. The worker guides that conversation, keeps the conversation focused on that change goal, 
in order to explore the ambivalence about it, to, to resolve that ambivalence to the degree that it can be resolved, and to strengthen that person's find and strengthen that person's motivations to want to consider and maybe make that change. And the worker is intentionally guiding and keeping the conversation focused on that behavioral change goal. So, you know, those are the things in combination that really constitute, as we said in the first podcast, the practice of motivational interviewing. So in summary, it's two experts walking down a path together, figuring this out together to simplify it and summarize what you just said. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. And again, that doesn't in any way mean that the worker doesn't have contributions to make in the conversation. I mean, mm -hmm. they are the guide for the conversation. And like you said, it's two experts that are working together. Right. That the person is the expert of themselves. I really love that. Thinking about that when I'm sitting with someone, you know, you best. Yeah. Which is really the commitment to being client centered mm -hmm. because that's kind of the heart and soul. In addition to unconditional positive regard, that's the heart and soul of what client centered counseling is the philosophy that the person is the expert of their life. And am I totally embraces that and is like you said, and I love the way you put it. It's a, it's also more than that. Right. And I like when we talk about this notion of person-centered and guiding versus directing. And when I start to talk to practitioners and give them feedback about their practice, they notice the nuance that directing isn't always, hey, Paul, you should stop smoking. It could be me saying, hey, Paul, why don't you try Chantix? And I say it from my heart and I want to help you. And we know in motivational interviewing that that's more persuasive. I might not be telling you necessarily what to do. I'm just kind of, hey, why don't you try this in a, in a meaningful way? Writing reflex, right? I kick in and want to, hey, did you find, did you hear about this new medication that works? Uh, so when we get into giving people feedback, they start to realize that the opposite of as guiding is not always just telling people what to do. And it, there's sometimes subtle persuasion. And I wonder if you want to explore those things when we, when in your, from your experience about giving people feedback and the tool that we use sometimes, because there's several tools, but the one that we use a lot is the motivational interviewing treatment integrity scale, the mighty. Yeah, which is a coding instrument, and and there are there are a number of coding instruments available, but the uh, the mighty the mighty four point two one is the one that we'll talk a little bit about today. Mm -hmm. And I guess before we break down the structure of the mighty, uh, I'd like to sort of share a perspective on it in terms of how I've actually used the mighty and I've used it in two very specific ways. One way is I've used it to listen to and code my own conversations with clients. Uh, 
so using this particular instrument and we'll break down what the components are, it's helped me to reflect on the strengths that I'm bringing to the conversation and the opportunities for growth. And the other place that I've used it is in terms of listening to recordings of other folks and uh, coding it using the instrument, which is a validated instrument. And the beauty of that is, is with this instrument, it's actually an extraordinarily helpful guide to being able to provide feedback, MI specific feedback about strengths that people are bringing to the conversation and opportunities for refinement or growth in terms of where they can focus their attentions in the next conversation. And I'll give a concrete example. Mm -hmm. One example might be that the person realizes, oh, I'm asking a lot of open-ended questions and I'm not doing a lot of reflections. Mm -hmm. Using the mighty, coding somebody's recording, that pattern would become apparent. And if you're looking at your own practice or if somebody's giving you feedback, they can talk to you about the prevalence of open-ended questions that you're asking in terms of the ratio of reflections that you're doing. So they can help you to modify or refine in a very specific way what it is you're actually doing. And I, I love that you put, put it into perspective that it's a way that you can explore your own skills as well and see, hmm, am I doing more of that? And it's so important to have a practitioner give us feedback as well, because there's a different perspective. Sometimes I'm harder on myself or sometimes I'm not hard enough on myself when I do the coding. So it's helpful to have a, a partner or a colleague uh, give you some feedback as well. And I was thinking about this person that I um, have been coding in a practice group that I'm involved with. And it was her nature. And I noticed that, you know, everybody's different. We're all different. We all have our own styles. I think about Miller and Rolnick. And when you watch either of them talk to someone, they have a different cadence about them. They have a different energy to them. Uh, so it's, I always like to say that to people, everybody has their own style and, and, and some of us have our own sticking points. So when I, I was sharing feedback with this woman, we talk about um, how you can make it stronger versus it's good or it's bad, or we could say it's motivational interviewing consistent or inconsistent in a frame that people don't feel so uh, negative about it. And, and she and I together noticed as partners in this, that she had a subtle way of putting her own ideas on the table to persuade someone. And it took her a while to see that. And after a while, she was able to catch herself after consistent feedback or even just reflective practice of her own, realize, hey, I'm not persuading as much anymore. Um, and that was really a powerful experience for her. And it was really fun to explore that with her, how subtle it was. You know, you're pointing out two, I think, really important points to consider with the practice of motivational interviewing. And I'm, and I'm going to preface this by saying that these are really important points to me personally, which uh, one is that um, 
the only way I'm really going to be able to improve my uh, practice of MI to refine my practice is that if I'm receiving feedback mm-hmm. and, and ideally feedback from somebody other than myself, uh, because as you pointed out, I may have blind spots or I may have sticking points about my own practice. I may not, I may not be able to hear myself. I absolutely cannot hear myself in an unbiased way. So having somebody else listen to a recording that I'm doing using a validated instrument, you know, they're not just shooting wild. They're, they have a structure that's guiding what they're listening for is, I think is critical. And, um, you know, I, I think the other point that you're making is that in the practice of motivational interviewing, reflection is essential. Mm-hmm that one is looking back at what one is doing and being willing to sort of notice those patterns and uh, refine what we're doing because we want to better engage, better guide the person uh, in their change process as opposed to the change process we may want to impose on them. And, you know, I I wanted to add, and I know we're going to unpack some of the instrument and talk about some of the components of it, talking to people who are nervous about recording and nervous about having someone listen into their own recording. There's a couple of things that I invite people to consider is to listen to your own tape for a while and you could use the mighty, or you could simply just count out how many questions versus reflections as a beginning aspect of just paying attention to your practice and the skills, the behavior counts, we call them in the mighty, the skills that you're using before you even move forward with finding a mentor or someone who's willing to give you feedback in a more robust way. It's a good way to start off and getting used to the notion for those who may not already be doing it. And unfortunately in, in the rooms that I train in, a lot of people don't get that feedback. Some of them don't get supervision at all, which is really sad to me. And if they do get supervision, that supervisor may or may not focus in on these particular skills. So I like to invite people to find people in their community or in their area. And now that we're a lot on Zoom, there's an opportunity to find people across across the globe, actually, to help you get feedback. Oh my God, Amy, are you saying that I may actually have to listen to my own voice speaking to somebody else? Well, it's it does seem a little scary, doesn't it, Paul? It, does and it's and I'm I'm laughing because we're doing a <laughs> we're doing a podcast here, um, so clearly we're going to be listening to our own voices or or you're going to be listening to our voices. And, and I will say that uh, I have found in the folks that I have the great privilege to engage in MI conversations with that that is one of the biggest barriers for them mm-hmm. in in recording their sessions and then self reflecting on those. I, oh, I don't like to listen to my own voice. And, and what I can tell you, at least from my experience, 
uh, I've gotten used to uh, getting past that it's, you know, I, I start just listening for the reflections or the questions or the other behaviors, and I stop kind of focusing on, I don't really like the way I sound. So uh, I, I really appreciate that you're kind of acknowledging that that's, that can, that can be a sticking point for people. And you really remind me that, you know, maybe even a, a gentler, easier way into it is, uh, and I do this sometimes in a training, there's a wonderful video called The Effective Dentist. Mm. And basically, and you can Google it and find it online. And what I sometimes will invite people to do is to take a piece of paper and write O-A-R-S along the side of it. Open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, and summaries. And then as they listen to this effective dentist video, Every time the dentist uses an open-ended question, make a little tick mark. Every time the dentist does an affirmation, make a tick mark, a, a reflection or a summary. And that can help people to train their ear to actually hear these behaviors. And maybe sometimes starting with listening to somebody else and training your ear mm. can make the transition to listening to yourself right. a, a little bit easier. It takes time to get over that hump to hear yourself talking and then get to the point of what you're saying to be able to code it. I also add um, to that, if you don't mind, listen to the news or listen to interviewers, Oprah Winfrey, Dr. Phil, whatever your poison is, uh, podcasts where people are asking each other questions and reflecting back. You can do that too, is train your ear, like you said, to listen in for open questions, reflections. What type of reflections? Because it is you, a natural human interaction of listening and, and talking to someone. Absolutely. And I would also say the um, intentional focus on it is probably a wildly unnatural human behavior. Mm -hmm. Pe people do it. They don't often step back and kind of observe the doing of it. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, this instrument, the mighty, is actually a, a wonderful tool to help us all in a very uh, structured way. And I mean, I don't mean that in an oppressive structure, but in a structured way to train our ears mm -hmm. to actually listen for and be able to identify the practice of motivational interviewing. And I'm wondering if now might be a good time to maybe walk through some of the overall structure of the mighty and then delve a little more deeply into some of the other components of the mighty. What are your thoughts about that, Amy? I think that sounds good. And to introduce it from a frame of, we talked about mentioned behavior counts and talked about questions versus reflections, which are some of those behavior counts. It doesn't just measure doing MI, it measures the being MI, which is all about the global ratings and part of the spirit and listening for change talk. So just to introduce the general aspects of the mighty, it talks about the behavior counts and also what we call the global ratings or technical and relational components. 
Mm -hmm. And all of those really are focused on the idea that we're very clear. And it says right on the, the mighty, which is a one page form, it says target change. So when using the mighty, we really want to be able to identify a target change, a, ch a change goal behavior. And it really speaks to what we were saying before about the, the ingredients that constitute the practice of motivational interviewing. First and foremost, there needs to be a behavioral change goal. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out, Paul. I was going to dive right into the other components. The target change is so important. And it's, it's one thing when we're practicing because people are ambivalent about a lot of things. I'm ambivalent about whether to paint my house blue or red. Okay, not red. <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm ambivalent about whether to take a trip to South Africa or a trip to the mountain West of the United States. So those are ambivalent things. Um, and it's one thing to practice motivational interviewing on a, on a change. It's super important to think about a behavior change. That's when we can really get a sense of cultivating or softening sustain and change or cultivating change talk and softening sustain talk. It's hard to measure change talk because it doesn't matter if I paint my house blue or red. I don't know if that's clear, but I just wanted to point out that the target change is about a behavior change, not necessarily a lifestyle change. Yeah, or necessarily making a decision. And I mean, yes, decision making mm -hmm. is part of the change process, but right. your, your point's well taken because let's be very clear about what we're talking about when we're talking about a behavior change. It, behavior change deciding to cut out sugar in my diet, smoking, cutting down the amount of smoking or quitting smoking. And by the way, harm reduction is a viable change goal from the perspective of motivational interviewing. So we're, we're talking about specific behavior changes. And again, it, on the mighty, we want to be able to identify that behavioral change and the global ratings and the behavior counts are all in relation to that target behavior. So you mentioned the global ratings and you, you kind of preface this already that there are technical components of the global ratings and there are relational components. And I love the fact that they're called global ratings because it's after you listen to the conversation overall, what is your take, and let's start with the technical component, on cultivating change talk? And there's a Likert scale of one to five, and the coding manual describes in great detail why somebody might get a score of one or why they might get a score of five or anything in between. But the technical element overall is cultivating change talk. The other technical component is softening sustain talk. Again, acknowledging that both change talk and sustain talk are part of the language of ambivalence. And they're probably going to be part of the conversation. And of course, in MI, we want to be cultivating change talk and softening sustain talk. You know, I just I just thought of this metaphor of gardening because of the word cultivating that sometimes the change talk is already there in the soil 
And we want to stir it up and cultivate and lean into that and listen to it and respond to it intentionally. And to me, almost like the softening sustain talk is we don't ignore the weeds. We pull them out sometimes and get rid of them. Uh, but we want to see less weeds than we want to hear the see the cultivating seed, right? So we want to cultivate the, the healthier plants and maybe uh, take care of the weeds a little bit, but not pay a whole lot of attention to. Important point, Amy, to be making, because I think a lot of people think, you know, and again, perhaps this is black and white thinking, but they think change talk good, sustain talk bad. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the thing we really want to be clear about is that both are components of the language of ambivalence. Mm-hmm. Both are probably going to be present. We want to focus on cultivating change talk and we want to attend to and not necessarily cultivate sustained talk. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those are listed as the two global rating technical components, meaning that we're using particular skills to intentionally create, cultivate change talk and soften sustain talk. You the know, next, I, I got yeah, go ahead. just a, a little story about the feedback that I got once. It's a short story <laughs> that uh, when someone was listening to my tape, it was great because I was cultivating change talk. At the same time, I was a little bit ignore, ignoring some of the sustained talk And it could have been that I wasn't listening to what the person was saying about the staying the same as much as I was worrying about cultivating change talk. So there's a balance there. And I like that you said it's not ignoring it, that you want to engage in a conversation and let people know that you hear them. Absolutely. And, you know, there is a way to attend to something. To, and I love that you're underlining like hearing it because you want to hear it. You don't necessarily want to cultivate it. Right. And, you know, the second piece of the global ratings are what are called the relational components. Again, same Likert scale for each one of these described in great detail in the manual. And it's two components, partnership. And, and you know, we talked about this. It's two experts walking together and also empathy. Mm. And, you know, the technical components are the things technically you're trying to respond to. And the relational components are really speaking to MI spirit in terms of how we want to be in this partnership. And are we expressing empathy? And are we seeking to understand the deep meaning to that individual? And it's so important, the empathy piece, because we certainly know from research that empathy is the number one factor in in effective outcomes for engaging people and certainly outcomes in a therapeutic relationship. So without that, the skills are just the skills without really leaning in and putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And we could spend a whole podcast on exploring what does it look like and feel like when you see and experience empathy? And I'll just leave it there for people to consider and think about. 
how does it feel to step in someone's shoes? It's not I'm relating to, I know what it's like to lose a parent. It's what is it like for you that you lost a parent? Because it's not what I experience, it's what you experience. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and empathy is not just a word. It's actually behaviors in terms of empathy is something that you actively do. It's not just sort of an idea. Oh, yes, I'm going to approach this in an empathetic way. I think you can also think about it from the perspective of, you know, imagine when you yourself have actually felt heard by somebody Mm. and like felt like they got it, they get you. And that is, is something that's critical for this, this global rating of relational components. And again, all of these global components, the technical components, the relational components are spelled out in great detail in the Motivational Interviewing Treatment Integrity Coding Manual 4.21. And one thing that I realized in my own practice as a human being, especially around getting uh, feedback around this instrument and, and others in, in Motivational Interviewing, One of the things that I experienced in getting feedback and reflecting and being a reflective practitioner is while I truly believe I'm an empathic person in general, there are times when I don't express that empathy or there's times when I'm not in the space with a person. And and that's really important for me because I have to sit with a person whether they're suffering with sadness or anger or frustration or ambivalence, I have to center myself and be with them. It's intentional too. So I'm not always empathic. And it took me a while and I'm surprised I'm admitting it here because it feels quite vulnerable to say that. There's times when I, maybe I'm empathic, but I'm not expressing it. So it's intentional as well. Mm -hmm. The heart set and a mindset. Yes. And it's a choice to bring that heart set and mindset to the conversation. And it's also a choice to reflect on what was the heart set and the mindset that I brought to that conversation. And how can I refine that? How Mm -hmm. can I build strength in particular areas that I may realize, oh, you know, in partnership, I realized through listening to that recording and using the mighty, I realized, you know, I was being more directive than directional. Mm -hmm. So going into the next conversation, you can carry that feedback with you and you can intentionally adjust what you're doing. The final component of the instrument are the behavioral counts. Mm. And again, these are, as you're listening to these, you're simply making tick marks of how many instances of giving information, how many instances of persuasion, persuasion with permission, simple reflections, complex reflections, affirmations, seeking collaboration, emphasizing autonomy and confrontation. And questions is up there too, uh, that we want to count how many questions we're using. 
mm-hmm. as well. Yes. So it's really just listening in to these behavior counts and counting how many times we hear this experience. And sometimes it's hard. I could say three or four different things and just try to count how many times you hear the reflection, the question, or the time that I might've affirmed someone. Mm-hmm. Which again, speaks to how this particular instrument and other coding instruments can be so helpful in training people's ear to listen for these particular behaviors. And of course, I'll, I'll, I'll just point out, we, in MI, we do not want to be confrontational, mm. <laughs> you know, just to pick one of the behaviors. So that would be an MI inconsistent behavior. We also with this want to focus on persuasion. And there's a, and you'll notice the instrument makes a distinction between persuasion and then mm-hmm. persuasion with permission. And, and it's important to be able to make that distinction. These behaviors, in terms of what their actual definitions are, are spelled out very specifically in the coding manual. And, and I'd like to invite everybody who maybe hasn't looked at the coding manual or hasn't looked at this particular instrument Simply reading the coding manual in and of itself is an extraordinary introduction and sort of clarification of motivational interviewing. Uh, And I personally found it quite accessible. And I was going to add something to what when you were talking about persuasion and persuasion with permission. I have, um, I asked one of my mentors, I, I try to surround myself with several mentors and, and pointing out that not everybody has the same interpretation of things. And when I asked him for feedback about what's the difference between a few of these things, like persuade and persuade with permission. And he said, you know, if you look at the first three behavior counts, which you rattled off and I will share again, giving information persuade and persuade with permission. He said, you know, they're not necessarily bad or good. Uh, Giving information is just, hey, do you know that we have this program here? Uh, It's giving information about what's going to happen next. Persuade is you want to do less of, and you want to do more if you're going to do persuasion at all with permission. Mm-hmm. So I like the language of do more or less of. So we want to do less of persuasion. Uh, and in, and if we do persuade, ask permission for it. Mm-hmm. If we're going to give that information. And then, as you said, confrontation is something that we know we don't want to do in motivational interviewing. For the sake of, we didn't need research, I don't think, to know this. If you think about, hey, Paul, just stop doing that. We know that people don't like to hear that. And we now know from research that people are actually more apt to do that thing that you're telling them not to do. So we know confrontation is not a beneficial thing to help people in their change process. Mm -hmm. And similarly, I I appreciate you focusing on um, persuasion and let's, it doesn't say it, but essentially it's saying persuasion without permission. Mm -hmm. Um, I appreciate you focusing on that because sometimes that can fall under the heading of giving information. You know, here I am the provider, maybe I went to school, maybe I have lived experience, and now I'm going to share this information with you. Well, 
sometimes that can really backfire in the sense that the information is being offered in a manner that is much more directive and the assumption of like, well, if I just educate this person enough, they'll do the right thing. That actually, and the data shows that giving information without permission, without checking in about what the person thinks about the information can actually lead the person to engage in the behavior that they're considering changing even more. And I know that that may seem counterintuitive, especially based on the fact that, you know, we want to share and give information and help, but ultimately that can cause the person to engage in the behavior more. Mm -hmm. And then the next three counts are the oft-cited behavior counts in questions and reflections and breaks down simple versus complex reflections. And I want to jump to the other or, which is the A, affirmations, which is also a behavior count, and share a story that, number one, uh, it's the least skill that, I, that I've been hearing when I listen to tapes. And this woman that I was um, practicing with, she was working with a person and she said, you know, I'm really struggling. And she worked on using more complex reflections than simple and then realized that she wasn't using any affirmations. So she decided to shift her focus and practice affirmations. And she said it totally changed the way this conversation went with this person and more so her feelings that she was really using simple and complex reflections to direct the person and that changing and thinking about the person's strengths and values helped her shift the focus of their relationship and conversation, if you will, because she was looking at the strengths and values. So it was just an interesting story to hear her uh, share that she was vulnerable in that I was really using the skills in a not so am I consistent way mm-hmm. and realized when I started to look at the strengths and the values of the person and affirm them, it shifted our focus and actually our engagement with each other. Mm, increased the engagement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And helped her realize that she had to look at these other components as well and not just focus on questions and reflections. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and again, you know, I, I think you're bringing back to the front of the conversation, Amy, how powerful a coding instrument like this can be because it can help people to think specifically about these behaviors, these approaches, technical and relational approaches that actually constitute the practice of MI. And yes, it it can feel daunting to make a recording of a conversation. It can feel daunting to hear one's own voice. Uh, And if a person is committed to maximizing their proficiency with the use of this particular evidence-based practice, it's critical to kind of jump in the water and be open to the idea of uh, receiving feedback and reflecting on what you're doing. And I think the important thing is for me is to not overwhelm myself 
or others with saying, hey, get this instrument and practice all of these things and get them right. But take a look at these and explore and get curious about them and try them on. How does it work for you? Just in the example that I just shared. Uh, and that's how this woman really unpacked the skill and related it to the spirit and related it to her own writing reflexes and, and her own feelings when she was with a person. Mm -hmm. And your point's a good one because somebody could use this is this instrument or any instrument actually as a way to sort of uh, negatively focus on themselves. And that's not the purpose. Mm -mm. The, pr the purpose is to help support what you're doing and also to identify your strengths. Because in using a validated instrument like this, you may realize, hey, I'm, I'm really great at reflecting. You know, I'm, I'm, I did X number of reflections. I'm doing more reflections than I'm doing questions. So your, your point about being curious about what you're doing, being committed to refining what you're doing, I think is an essential perspective to take when embarking upon using an instrument like this. So to wrap up, there's two behavior accounts that we didn't elaborate on and, and perhaps we could just mention them in a way using the mighty. Uh, we would say something to seek collaboration. Is it okay that we explore the skills together and use the mighty and listen to your tapes and listen to your practice and see how things go? So that would be a seeking collaboration, which is another behavior count. And, you know, it's really up to you if you want to do it, which is the em emphasizing autonomy, which is the other behavior count. So it's up to you if you want to explore the mighty and see how it plays out in your practice of motivational interviewing. Yeah, that's a wonderful way to kind of tie it up, Amy, because it is entirely, you know, up to to anyone who's listening to this podcast as to if this is something you're curious about and you want to look into more. And we, of course, want to affirm your autonomy to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I appreciate talking to you about this today, Amy, and I'll look forward to our next conversation. Thanks, Paul. listening to episode two of Lions and Tigers and Bears MI. Join us for episode three, where Amy and Paul will discuss the MI spirit. Lions and Tigers and Bears MI is hosted by Amy Shanahan and Paul Warren and is produced by staff at Cassatt at the University of Nevada, Reno. Cassette Podcast Network. This podcast has been brought to you by the Cassette Podcast Network, located within the Center for the Application of Substance Abuse Technologies at the University of Nevada, Reno. For more podcasts, information, and resources, visit cassette.org.